Yesterday, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Neil Gibson, a, uh, a senior lecturer at uh, Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, Scotland. Right. Known as the, the best modern university. I, I know you, you were very impressed in Scotland. Well, I, I had never seen it before. Yeah. Of course, they have those old English universities, Cambridge and Oxford and places. And so I just assumed that that's what it meant. But it turns out that. Um, it's a very old institution. It goes back to the 17 or 1800s. Yeah. And it was initially a uh, technical school. Mm -hmm. And um, in the 90s, I think it became a, a university. So right. it's a relatively new university, but it's got a very good reputation. Yeah. You know, it's not one of those places. And Robert, Robert Gordon is a, was one of the founders. Um, but it was hundreds of years ago. But as a university, it's relatively recent. It's considered the best modern university in Scotland mm -hmm. and the second best in the UK. Yeah. So those are those are impressive credentials. It's yeah. I'm not sure how they measure those things, but it's yeah. Uh, and, and Dr. Gibson or just refers to himself as Neil. Right. Um, he uh, was joined us to talk about uh, therapeutic photography. Right. Um, and it was something that we had never heard of before. Um, New to me. But <laughs> it was a fantastic interview. Um, th the work that he's done and the, the things that he has, um, right. he talks about doing with the therapeutic photography is, is fascinating. They have an online program um, for a certification that will be coming up at mm -hmm. uh, Neil Gordon uh, through their online right. uh, education program. And uh, Neil has a book out. Uh, we'll have the link to all of those things in the uh, show notes. Yes, um, I, I, as I explained to him, I had no idea what therapeutic photography was, and I was, well, it'll be interesting and nice to know what it's about and everything. It was fascinating talking to him mm -hmm. of how he has incorporated uh, photography, which all of us can do now. Mm -hmm. I, as right. he was talking, I was thinking, um, years ago, you had to learn how to use a decent right. camera. I mean, yeah. you had a choice of using a simple, you know, Kodak, whatever that thing was, or you had to learn how to use a, in a Kodamatic or something like that. Right, it's right. one of those simple, and and you'd get red eye and all these mm -hmm, problems mm -hmm. that you run into, or you would have to learn how to use a thirty-five millimeter camera, which right. took some technical yeah. expertise until they became automatic. Um, so now all of us can take pictures. Yeah. We have iPhones and iPads. And, and he said they just use their uh, devices. Whatever they have, yeah. right? And and the the um, quality of uh, photography, even with our phones, and mm -hmm. is really good. Right. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. They they get better with every iteration. But in talking to him, you you really understand mm -hmm. um, and appreciate the use of these visual techniques in what is traditionally a very verbal mm -hmm. um, talk-centered therapy. Mm -hmm. And you realize what a wonderful contribution these things can make. Absolutely. And now, throughout the uh, podcast, if you're watching it on YouTube, right. um, I've worked to put in, he, he sent some pictures right. uh, that were taken. Uh, he talked about a, a program where they, where they did therapeutic photography uh, with a group in Africa. Um, Studying resilience. The studying theme, resilience. Yeah, yeah, the theme was resilience. So we have some pictures from that. These were uh, war-torn mm -hmm. countries, survivors of of uh, civil wars there in Africa, and um, and the theme that they mm -hmm. pursued in the group therapy was um, 
was resilience. Resilience, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, some other uh, photos uh, from a from some other groups that he's worked with. So um, mm -hmm. I worked to kind of had them splintered throughout the right. um, throughout the video. So if you have a chance to check this out on YouTube, uh, you'll be able to see those uh, pictures. Mm -hmm. So and it's almost something you could learn how to do yourself. Yeah. You know, or if you're if you're a therapist and you're interested, take a look at his website. Yeah. He has an online course, and um, it's very effective in a group therapy mm -hmm. setting and I and I teach groups and we yeah. do groups here in our practice and I'd love to incorporate some of these principles absolutely. into our groups absolutely yeah. so all right so uh, we are we are excited to bring you this yeah. interview uh, with dr. Neil Gibson mm -hmm. uh, and we'd love to hear what you think and please reach out to um, Neil if you have any questions or comments so yes yeah, really not very approachable absolutely very down to earth yeah. you know so he'd be it'd, it'd be interesting to talk to him so Definitely. and he said yeah, you know, feel free. Just let him know. Right. All right. Enjoy the interview. Today we have a special guest with us, um, live and uh, in person from the UK, from Scotland. Scotland, right? Yeah, absolutely. From Scotland. Yeah. We yes. keep we keep threatening to visit. You know, we have a good friend there. Yeah, Fraser. Yeah, Fraser Smith. He's a he's a. Um, a counseling. Um, he's finishing up his doctorate there, and uh, so we, we talked to him often. So it's great to now have an, another friend over right. in Scotland. Absolutely, yeah. Our Scottish colleagues. That's right. <laughs> uh, so today we're talking with um, Neil Gibson, who is um, again uh, from uh, over in Scotland, and we're going to talk today about his work with uh, uh, photography therapy, photographic therapy. Um, so we're really excited to talk with you. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me. It's a, a pleasure to be on your show. This is great. Um, so well, let's start out, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, well, we've already talked about you being from, from Scotland, but tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and, um, and what you've been doing. Sure, no problem. At the moment, I uh, am a senior lecturer and the course leader for a BA Honours Social Work course at Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen. And I've been there for about six, seven years now. Um, my career before that's been quite mixed and varied. Uh, just before I came to work at the university, I, I was a social worker uh, working with a huge number of different types of service users from children in residential care through to adults in hospital settings. So, so quite a variety. And then before that, um, again, quite a, a mixed and varied background, uh, including a little bit of work in the media, uh, work in travel and tourism, and even working in a bank. And I did a lot of traveling as well. But I think my background there helped me in social work uh, because what I really enjoyed doing was meeting people, working with people, and, and problem solving. So that's really brought me to the career of social work and into academia. Well, speaking of academia, you're at Robert Gordon University. Yeah. And that's an old university founded hundreds of years ago, but it's listed as the top, and you have to help me out here, Neil, it's listed as the top modern university in Scotland and the second um, rated university in the UK, but it, it specifies as a modern university. Is that to separate things from Cambridge and, and all that? Yeah, I think where the confusion lies is that because we're in Aberdeen, we often get 
confused or aligned with Aberdeen University, which is right. one of the oldest universities. Robert Gordon University was um, more of a technical college. Um, and I think, I'm stretching my memory now, but I think it was established uh, in around about the 1960s. So it is a modern university in terms of uh, universities in Aberdeen. Uh, it became a university in 1990s yes. and has since now specialises in more vocational skills like social right. work, nursing, midwifery. Um, but we also have a business school. We've also got an art school as well. So we're a very big university, but we're classed as a modern university because we're, we're quite new on the scene compared to Aberdeen, Cambridge, um, Oxford, such like. Right. So they make that distinction there. Yeah. But this is Robert, and you're in the Department of Applied Social Studies, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, all right. I wanted to clarify that because I hadn't heard the term modern university before, but I assumed it had something to do with the other older universities. Sure, that's right, yeah. Okay. So, okay, thank you for clarifying that. Now, the other thing we have to clarify, or the other thing that I would like to clarify, is the difference between... I know you're going to talk in, about therapeutic photography. Yeah. What's, what is therapeutic photography and how does it differ from phototherapy? I'm sure that's a question that comes up uh, frequently. Yeah, and it's an excellent question. Um, when I first started looking at um, the role of photography as a therapeutic tool, I came across these two terms, phototherapy and therapeutic photography. And I, that was one of my starting points was to work out what the difference is. Now, there's some excellent work um, by a woman called Judy Weiser, who writes quite extensively about the two practices. And it was her definition that I really used to, to make the difference. Um, phototherapy is the use of photographs in therapy or in counselling. And to do that, you really need to have a qualification in therapy or counselling. Therapeutic photography is it's still using photographs in a therapeutic sense, but it can be used by professionals without a, a qualification in therapy or counselling. It can also be used in peer-to-peer -peer support. So uh, if you're working with groups, it's something that groups can initiate themselves and still call therapeutic photography. So it's really, for me, it's the distinction between requiring a formal certificate or, or um, qualification in counselling or therapy or not. But they, but they use two different procedures too, don't they? They do. I would say that phototherapy is more um, psychoanalytic in its approach. Um, and that's not to say that therapeutic photography isn't, because I think it draws on a lot of skills. And that's, again, that's what drove my interest in this area was because for me, when I started reading about therapeutic photography, I could see that it utilized a lot of skills from sociology, from psychology, from counselling. And okay, you may not be going into the depth that uh, a, um, a psychiatrist might be or a counsellor might be, but there were still clear benefits that were tapping into these areas. Um, so I think there's quite a big crossover between the two practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit about um, therapeutic photography. Is it, um, are, are the individuals who are participating um, going and, and 
in taking uh, photographs? Are they looking at photographs or is it a little bit of both? Tell us a little bit about what uh, therapeutic photography is. Sure. For me, it's mostly about taking photographs. Um, the very first exercise I do, I just use a pile of postcards. So that would be the only exercise that I use pre-existing images in, in my work with uh, service users. And that's really just to get people to engage with an image and to um, explore and communicate through an image. And it's really just an icebreaker for me. But then we go straight into the exercises where I ask people to, to take photographs and to use maybe existing photographs that they've already taken. So we work a lot with mobile technology, so tablets, mobile phones, digital cameras, uh, and then you've got the ease of access to see the image as well. So it's very much about exploring issues. Um, and again, I, I've, I've structured that in such a way that we usually start with self-exploration and then move on to look at relationships, um, the environment, uh, society, and we use the photographs to, as a form of ex expression and a form of communication to facilitate exploration from the service users. So it's very much about taking photographs and talking about the photographs. Mm -hmm. Great. And, and how do, um, do, the, do the people participating, do they choose what they take photographs of or is there a, uh, a structure to that? Yeah, when I started looking at therapeutic photography, what I realized was that there were some professions that were, were using elements of this in their work. And I started to ask them, why? Why do you do this? And they said, we don't know, but we know it works. There's something about this that really enables communication. So for me, one thing that was lacking from the outset was structure. People were using this, but they weren't really sure how they were using it and why they were using it. So I was quite keen to introduce a little bit of structure to it. So I used a socio-ecological model to structure that. So that's why I started with self-exploration, then went out to explore families and wider relationships and such like. But I wanted to be sure that the people who were taking photographs were fully in control because there's all the power dynamics in therapeutic relationships as well. So. For me, it was about setting almost like a, a, a task for people to explore. So that would be the only thing I would set was, for, for example, one of the first things we do is to do a self-portrait. Self so we talk about the difference between selfies and, and self-portraits. And what I ask the participants to do is capture a positive characteristic of themselves. And that's, that's really the remit. So it's up to them how they interpret that. It's up to them what they photograph. So for me, it's about giving the participants control, as much control as possible in the process. So they decide what to photograph, they decide who to show that photograph to, they decide what to say about that photograph. Um, so a lot of it is around about elements of control. So I don't want to be too prescriptive about what people photograph or how people photograph. For me, it's about, here's a theme, we're gonna explore this, you interpret that how you want to and come back and share the images with the group. Fantastic. And now, um, one of the questions in an earlier um, article, I think it was the article in PsychReg, you made the statement that you had some sort of, some sort of an experience that led you to think that there might be some benefit in uh, therapeutic photography and that that led to your dissertation. Yeah. What was that experience? What were you referring to there? 
there, there were there were two really when i was a student uh studying social work myself uh, i did a placement in belgium uh, over in antwerp and i worked uh, with asylum seekers in a center and i was there for 12 weeks and i was asked to do some work with a, a group and because i'm interested in photography i had my camera with me so I invited some of the residents in the centre to join me on a weekly basis and I gave them the camera and asked them to document their, their life in the asylum centre. And I was expecting to get back really negative images because it wasn't, it wasn't a, a homely place at all. It was really a holding centre. So I was quite surprised that when the images were were produced they were really positive images and they, they focused a lot on the the camaraderie the the relationships that were forming within the center so that was my first taster of i suppose me being challenged as a professional by my assumptions and actually the reality was no that's not what they wanted to focus on they wanted to focus on the relationships so I went into practice and I didn't use photography in my own practice in social work, but I was still keen to, to experiment with photo photographs myself. So I just started doing a project myself, taking one photograph a day for a year. And I did that and I looked back at all the photographs at the end of the year and I was, I was surprised a bit. I could remember the narrative behind every single photograph that I'd taken. And that, that got me thinking, what, what's the power here? What, what is it about photography that is so powerful that it, it taps into the memory, it gives us the ability to communicate and express ourselves in a safe, safe way. And that led me into looking at the practice of therapeutic photography or phototherapy. And also I was keen to study, I was keen to go on and do some research myself. And I can't remember who it was, but somebody, and I, I thank them a lot, said to me, choose something that you're interested in because if you're studying something, you've got to be passionate about it. And I'm so glad they did because for me, this is my passion. It was just, it was fascinating to get delving into the theories behind therapeutic photography and, and looking at why it worked. Mm. That, that's fascinating. And, and I, um, it makes me wonder uh, with what you were just saying, you know, you took the, a photograph every day and, and as you look back at them, you, you could remember the narrative associated with each photograph. Mm -hmm. I wonder what is what would that mean for people who you know when you have like like teenagers who mm -hmm. are you know sort of saturating um, everything that they do with selfies and with with some of those things. I, I wonder if there's uh, do, do you know if there's been any research looking at at that? Um, you know, I, I I probably maybe caught you off guard with that question. But <laughs> I, I, it just makes me wonder, you know, because I, I think back to. Uh, trips that we've taken or things that we've done and when you see a picture you can say oh i remember when we took that picture we were doing this or that but it's you know one picture um from that event um and it was pretty meaningful as compared to somebody who takes you know 20 selfies of themselves at a at a um you know while they're sitting in their car um at a stoplight well neil before while you're answering that if you could <laughs> add this piece to it you mentioned earlier that uh, you mentioned are selfies versus a self-portrait. Right. So are, do selfies fall in a different category in the work that you do? Is that, is that a different experience than a self-portrait or a meaningful photograph right. that you take? Is a selfie different? I think 
that selfies are different, but if I was working with a service user and they chose to do a selfie for their self-portrait and then highlighted a positive characteristic within that, I would completely accept that to them, that selfie has captured a positive quality of who they are. Where I make the distinction is when I do the self-portrait exercise, it, it is really focused on a positive characteristic or quality of who you are. Um, and I think that almost taps into mindfulness. It, it's slowing down, it's being in the moment, it's, it's thinking in the moment. Whereas for me, selfies are, they serve a different purpose. It's almost like a positive, it's, it's, it's self uh, PR. It's like saying, this is the best of me. This is the best of who I can be. And I think you're then tapping into a lot of identity theory Almost um, looking at Winnicott, where you've got the true self and the false self. And I think selfies are very much about the false self. It's about this representation of who you are in society. Whereas I think the self-portrait exercise that I do tries to get people to think about the true self. You know, in isolation, at home in front of your TV, think about yourself in that environment and what are the positive qualities of who you are to yourself rather than that self-facing public person. Um, with the groups that I, I've worked with, I did find that the younger populations were found the self-portrait exercise really easy. They would do that. It was more sort of the, the older um, populations that I worked with were a little bit more reluctant to delve into this sort of self-portrait, self-appraisal. Um, I don't know what it's like in uh, the States, but in the UK, I think we're, we're, we're discouraged from being um, giving ourselves praise and, and looking at positive qualities of who we are. So for some, that's quite uncomfortable. Um, but if you're using photographs in an abstract way, that adds a layer of safety uh, for people. So to answer the question about research, th there is some research into selfies and whether selfies have a therapeutic benefit. Um, I can't for the life of me remember who, who wrote that paper, but I did come across it uh, in my own research. Um, but again, I think they were very much of the opinion that it was that kind of very public self-facing image that you were looking at with selfies. Yeah, that's what we we talked about that before on on previous uh, podcasts. That you know you see there's one um, selfie posted published, uh, but that may be the the last of about twenty or thirty attempts to make sure that they get the right PR. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I find this fascinating, um, the way that you're, you're talking about using therapeutic photography. Um, what, is the, what is the ultimate goal with uh, therapeutic photography? Is it, is it more of this um, mindfulness, as you were just talking about, um, or is that primarily with the self-portrait, um, or is there some, a, a different therapeutic goal um, overall for, with this approach? Yeah. When I started looking at this, I was looking at three different outcomes um, and, and there were outcomes that I saw in all the participants. So it was around about self-esteem. So coming onto the, the program, exploring issues uh, and learning from the peers uh, to enhance the self-esteem and also from producing images and getting appraisal of those images that was effective on self-esteem. There was a self-efficacy as well, because a lot of people I worked with really kind of felt 
a little bit at a loss to know what to do. And because they were then engaging in producing images and um, again, sharing those images with people, there was that self-efficacy, this belief that actually I can do something and therefore I can, I can facilitate change in my life. And also empowerment, that was quite strong as well. And these, these three concepts, they are quite nebulous and they are quite difficult to pin down, but I tried to use some um, quantitative tools to, to gather some information at the start of the program and at the end to see what changes had been made. I think for me, the empowerment one was quite important because what I found was that the groups that I, I ran, we came together under a theme. So it might be mental health issues, it might be substance use issues, it might be caring issues. But when we got into using the photographs to explore, it was much more about self-identity. So we were moving away from having this banner of somebody with a mental health issue to, yeah, okay, I have got a mental health issue, but I've got also all these other avenues of who I am, my personality. So the participants were using the photographs to, to form bonds to start off with, to establish role similarity, but then they were moving into more self-concept. They were sort of saying, okay, well, I, I now recognize the similarities between us, but what are the differences? And people were then able to, to learn from one another, to learn coping skills, um, but also to almost form a sense of direction into where they wanted to go to next. So, it was self-esteem, self-efficacy and empowerment. But what I also noticed was the, the sense of control the participants had. And I mean, I, I had a huge amount of learning from my participants and also the sense of self-disclosure that, that people offered with their photographs as well. And I know that that's worried some practitioners to say, you know, what about this self-disclosure? You know, is this not concerning that people are using photographs to uh, to maybe disclose things that they, they're rushing into. But my argument was, well, that is why we should look at therapeutic photography as more of a, a professional tool to be used by people with the skills to, to handle those, those uh, disclosures and to work with people and, if necessary, to signpost people into other services if there are clear issues that need to be addressed. Hmm. This is, it's fascinating. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Um, so you can, you can take a theme for a, a resilience, for example. Yeah. And that could be the theme for a particular group. Yeah. And then everybody is pursuing that theme in the photography. Yes. Or, but you could also do it. If you did it individually, you could have a person taking photographs and then analyzing them for and and to discover themes in the photographs yes you could do that as well it's funny you mentioned the resilience um, we, we did a project in africa earlier this year and that was the theme that we looked at we were working with a population in nairobi in one of the informal settlements and it was at the time of the elections and 10 years ago there'd been horrendous violence uh, many many killed so we were looking at resilience and we used the therapeutic photography for the participants to explore what gives them or what what, what helps resilience but also what threatens resilience so that was we set a theme there but with the other groups that i've run what I like to do is get the group to set their own theme by the end of the project. And that underpins the empowerment because I don't want to come in and say, 
right, you've all got mental health issues, let's explore mental health. With that, with that particular group, um, what I did was said, you've all worked together for four weeks now, what theme would you like to explore for your final project? They chose the theme of my safe space. So it was what gave them safety and what threatened safety. So that was me giving them the power to use the photographs to explore their own issues. Um, and again, I think that underpins that control aspect, the empowerment aspect. When you when you uh, are working on a project, particularly as you near the end, are the participants are the do the participants discover things that they hadn't anticipated? Some do. Um, I'm trying to think of the mental health group. I mean, they were all so different. And I think they all took different learning from the experience. So some, I think, learned a lot about themselves in terms of what they wanted to do next. I think some were given more confidence in expressing the issues that were relevant to themselves. For that particular group, I'm, I'm focusing on the mental health group, what I think they all learned was that they all felt isolated and they all felt um, excluded from society. And most of them were using similar strategies, which they hadn't picked up on. And it was simple things that when the curtains were closed, uh, that meant they were having a bad day. And as professionals, we sort of recognized that, but as individuals on the group, they hadn't realized that they were all using the same strategies. So that appeared to be a big revelation for that group. It was that, all right, I do that and you do that. Okay, so I'm, I, I don't think I'm so alone now. So there was almost a sense of community. And I think, again, that underpinned the empowerment. Mm -hmm. and that, that's just that one group. I worked with carers. Uh, there was one particular carer who was an older woman and her partner had died. And, but she still recognized herself as a carer. And then at the end of the group, she said, you know, I, I don't think I can call myself a carer anymore. And this was a positive thing for her. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, I, I'm, I'm kidding myself. It was more like, I think I'm now ready to move on. So, oh. so there's different learning for different people. And I think that's the beauty of it because they're in control, they're expressing their issues and they're learning from the group. Um, so it's very different to pin, pin down a, a definitive, change uh, that would would be a blanket change for everybody mm -hmm. amazing now, how long do the groups last how long do the are the projects the the ones that i was running were only six weeks long um wow. so a very short time scale and when i collected feedback that was one of the criticisms was that we want to do this longer but my intention was to introduce the groups to this concept of therapeutic photography and as i said it, it can be a peer-led project so after the six weeks, they they then had the knowledge to continue to use these skills and explore these skills. I ran a, a group with adults with autism, and one of the participants there went on to run his own groups, which that was ideal. That was the, the intended purpose was you now have the skills, you can run with this um, within an agency setting. So they had the agency support as well. Um, but yeah, only six weeks. Wow. That's a that's a that's some great um, insight that they're developing in a in a relatively short amount of time. Really, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. It's so focused. It's an intense focus that you wouldn't get in a talk therapy mm -hmm. uh, setting. Is it one session a week? Yeah, a two hour session every week uh, for for six weeks. Sure. Um, 
you know, again, varied, varied successes with the adults with autism group. Uh, on the first two hour session, I was finished after an hour because the input was so little. And I did worry at that point. I thought, well, maybe I found a group that this isn't going to work with. But at the end of the six weeks, we were running over time because people were using the images and exploring the images. And what was heartening there was that they said that this was the first experience they had where they felt they were actually able to explore what autism was. And I couldn't believe that. I thought, why has this not been done before with this group? And I think it was the fact that we rely so much on talking therapies. And for this group, they were able to externalize an issue mm -hmm. and objectify it and explore it in a safe way uh, that they hadn't done before. So it worked really well with that group. Wow. How, how large are the groups? And, and do you, um, do you, do you create the, the groups um, to make them more homogeneous to begin with, or are they, do you have groups that are very heterogeneous? I wondered about that, whether they're heterogeneous or homogeneous. Yeah. yeah. The, the groups tend to be, I would say, six to eight participants. Um, and what I did, I wasn't involved in setting up the groups. The agencies approached me and said, we have this group, we want to use the therapeutic photography. So I, I left it very much up to the agencies to set up the group. The only challenge I had was with a substance use group. And the agency that set up that group, one of their ground rules was that you weren't allowed to speak about substances because they were going through recovery. So they were concerned that any talk about drugs might, you know, I suppose, awaken a desire to use drugs. Um, and I had conversations with the agency because I didn't agree with that. I thought if that was an issue that people wanted to explore, they should be allowed to explore that. So they, they said that would be fine, that we could explore that. And I think it was really good because it freed people up to talk about you know, triggers to using. And they recognized their own warning signs and where the dangers lay. So, um, so in answer, I've not actually been involved in setting up groups specifically. I will work with any groups um, and I usually leave it up to the agencies to set up the groups. That was my other question. How do you, I'm, I'm thinking about how do you assemble a group, but you rely on the agencies to provide you with a group. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. That was one of my questions. Yeah. yeah. And, and it sounds like, as you've described, the, um, when, when you were initially talking about the difference between therapeutic photography and phototherapy, um, you, you had mentioned that phototherapy was, there was sort of this psychoanalytic, um, sort of uh, almost projective, um, right. looking into the unconscious a little bit. Um, but it sounds like you certainly incorporate that into your um, therapeutic photography as well. I think there are elements of that as well. And again, this has been a, a source of slight conflict with other professionals. They say, well, what, how can you do that if you don't have the training to do that? Um, Social work in Scotland, uh, we train in, um, in, in sociology, in psychology, and we look at um, human growth and behaviour. So we look at the psychoanalytic theories as well. So to practice in Scotland, we need to have those, those skills and, and those, that, that professional knowledge. Um, so using this in a setting in Scotland in social work, we naturally do recognize these theories. And I'm not saying that we, we would then do in-depth counseling or therapy based on these theories, but it helps us signpost uh, people where these services might be required. Um, 
Now, there has been one group that I ran where I felt it was clear that there was more work needed to be done with one particular service user. Uh, and because I had those knowledges of you know, Ericsson, Bowlby, um, object relations, I was able to, to signpost this person into, into further therapy. Great. Now, are, is therapeutic photography always done in groups or do you do them with individuals as well? You can do it with individuals as well. I think it works particularly well in groups because of the, the whole concept of self-efficacy and empowerment. But you can certainly choose some of the exercises. So I've, I've done some training with um, workers in Scotland and I know that there's um, some of the social workers are now using these exercises on a one-to-one -one basis with children or, or younger adults anyway, uh, to look at self-esteem issues. And because I've structured the program in such a way that we, we look at that sort of self-exploration branching right out to exploring society, it's almost, you can choose some of the exercises and, and perfect them to, to use with service users if there are specific issues. Um, where I found it particularly useful, and again, I'm talking about social work in Scotland, has been in building up that therapeutic relationship with somebody really quickly. And social workers have said to me that working with young people, because they're so technologically savvy and they use mobile phones all the time, uh, it's a really good way of quickly engaging with, with young people and then giving them control in the exploration. Excellent. Yeah, that, that whole therapeutic um, psychoanalytic perspective is fascinates me because I think I would be very tempted to keep t thinking about the the unconscious you know that you're taking these photographs and sometimes you're not even aware at a conscious level of why you're taking them and I can right. think of trips I've taken when we use cameras instead of cell phones and I would take particular photographs and I wasn't quite sure why I was taking photographs right. of, of a particular door mm -hmm. um, and so I would, I think as a therapist, I'd always be tempted to take a psychoanalytic approach. You'd almost inevitably take a psychoanalytic approach, wouldn't you? As a therapist, absolutely. Um, as a facilitator of these groups, I'm, one thing that I was conscious of was I didn't want to read into their photographs and tell them what I saw in their photographs. It was much more important to me that they were telling me about their photographs and what they saw in their photographs. Okay. Sometimes the, the, the peer group would, would comment on things and I, I, I applauded that, it was great because I was sometimes thinking things and somebody in the group would say that, I was like, oh, brilliant. Okay. Um, but I felt I had to be very careful not to take over the description because a lot of the therapeutic work was done in the narrative. It wasn't so much what was in the photograph, it was what was being said about the photograph right. and what others were saying about it as well. So you're absolutely right. Yes, I, I could have gone, oh, it would have been great to sort of delve into some of these images because I could see things, but I didn't want to disempower uh, the person when they were telling me about their image. So it really is a, it really is a group process. This is, this is it really facil facilitates a group process. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yes. They have to communicate with each other. So it's a classic group um, process at work here. It's just yeah. facilitated by the photographs. Yeah, and I, again, I, I know as a facilitator, I was using a lot of psychoanalytic theories, psychodynamic theories. Um, I, I really like um, the at attachment theory, for example. Mm -hmm. And I could see adult attachment styles coming through in the participants around about, 
people who felt avoidant and wanted that control. Uh, there was the, the anxious ambivalence in that there was a tendency to go off and, and ramble about things. But with the photographs, for the avoidant ones, it, it gave them control and power. They were in charge. For the anxious ambivalence, it gave somebody a focus and a purpose so that there was less tendency to go off and ramble at length. Mm -hmm. um, so examples like that, I was certainly using these theories uh, to contain the group, but I wasn't using them to read into the photographs. Well, the next time I teach group, I teach group at a local university. The next time I teach group, I'm going to introduce this concept to them. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Maybe I should come to Scotland Absolutely. and get a tutorial. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's, it's fascinating because you're right. One of the problems in groups is you have these different personalities. Mm -hmm. Some tend to take over, some tend to stay quiet. So having photographs there would give every would give you an immediate focus and you talk about that. You don't have to conjure anything up. It's sitting right in front of you. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, then on a one-to-one -one basis, um, the whole nonverbal communication, the, the, mm -hmm. it, it's so much safer if you're not having that direct one-to-one -one eye contact, you're right. sitting next to a person, your focus is on the photograph. So the dynamics change there as well. So right. it's one of the first things to do with the when I'm, when I'm training people in using this approach is think about the nonverbal communication, think about how, how much that frees you up. Um, but in a group setting, you're absolutely right. It almost gives people their turn. Okay, well, I have to tell you, I was a little bit skeptical, Neil, <laughs> this whole business. But having he's a, heard a skeptical kind of guy. No, no, no I said, but therapeutic photography, I'm trying to, I've read the articles, looked at your dissertation, and I thought, I don't know about this. This is, I love the idea, It's it, it, especially in a group setting. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And, yeah. and how do you, how do you, present the photographs in the group setting like do do does everybody print out you know do you, do you actually have a hard copy of them or do you have it digitally so that everybody can see it on a on a projection or how do, how do you present everyone's photographs when i started what i did was i had a a webcam so i would just focus the webcam on the back of the the, the photograph device and we would project it onto the wall but actually i find that quite time consuming and i think participants did as well. So really what happened was they would just pass around their own device and people would share that. Um, towards the end of the, the, the run of the programs, if the agencies had any funding, they would then pay for these photographs to be developed. And that was so great to see all the photographs that had been produced laid out on a table. Um, from the outset, though, I wanted to ensure that people were felt safe to photograph whatever they wanted to. And we, we do some discussion about what's appropriate to photograph. And if you're, if you're photographing people, ensure that you've got their permission and such like. Um, but I didn't want to have a purpose for the photographs um, because I thought that might inhibit people uh, in, in terms of what they photographed. So at the end of the process, we always discuss what people want to do with the images. So if they have been printed out, do they want to put on a display? Uh, do they want to make up a photo book? So it was really, again, empowerment was talking to the group about what they wanted to do with the photographs at the end. Uh, but most of the time we'd end up with you know, three or 400 images printed out laid across the table. And it was just so rewarding to see the group interacting with the images again, kind of that tactile element and talking about what they remembered from taking the photograph four or five weeks ago. So. Yeah. It's amazing. Wow. So, um, so do you, do you teach this um, this process at, at the university, or do you have your own practice? 
um, how, how do you implement this? I know you mentioned um, agencies that you worked with before, but yeah. um, how, did, how is it structured for you? Um, my, my full-time job is, is at the university, so it gives me very little time to do any extra um, work around therapeutic photography. We have developed an online course that uh, is aimed at facilitators and professionals to use this approach. Uh, so we have the online course through Robert Gordon University. I'm currently just revamping that at the moment uh, to make sure that participants can opt in and just run through the 12-week block uh, and get the training. Um, but that should be back online uh, at the start of next year. I, I will go out to agencies to do training uh, with agencies uh, when requested. Um, I've also got the book out. Uh, I've, the book came out in August through Jessica Kingsley Publishers, um, just called Therapeutic Photography. And it talks about some of the common theories used in the approach. And it has a structured program at the back as well. But my, my main intention when I first started the project was, as I said, to give practitioners and facilitators structure to use this approach. I don't, I don't want to be precious with this approach. I don't want to say it's mine, you know, you've got to come to me to use it. It's an approach that is actually, when you start using it, it's very easy and very freeing. And that would be my goal would be to see people using this in practice and, and just seeing the benefits because as a social worker, it, it's really about the service user at the end of the day and anything we can do to enable them to express or explore issues and find solutions for themselves, that would be my ultimate goal. Um, so that's hence the book. The, the book is quite self-explanatory and it will give um, practitioners and professionals clear insight into how to use this approach. And I think the evidence base to then go on and use it, because again, I think that was missing as well, was this evidence base to underpin what's being done. Fantastic. You made a believer out of me. Well, it makes, like, it makes me want to take that online uh, course. Yeah, I'm just to look at that. Yeah. Right. yeah no worries. Uh, well, well, tell us, at, share with the listeners how they can um, learn more about therapeutic photography, how they can follow your work, um, where they can get your book. Um, um, how do we follow you? Well, so the, the book's available through Jessica Kingsley Publishers, um, and it's called Therapeutic Photography. I'll show you a quick copy. There we go. Okay. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Um, the, the online course is um, available for, through Robert Gordon University. So you, you would find it just through an internet search, but also just going to Robert Gordon University website. There's details about the course there. Um, I've got a profile on academia. Um, and yeah, I, I, I would just encourage anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very happy to answer any queries, any questions about it. So you'll find my profile on, at the Robert Gordon University website as well. If anybody's thinking of using this approach has any questions at all, honestly, feel free to drop me an email. No problem at all. Um, as I said, I think the more people that start using this approach and, and seeing the benefits, the better. Fantastic. I'll, I'll put a link to all yeah. of those things in the show notes so, so folks can just click on and, and um, follow you and, and reach out to you if they have any questions. Because I think that uh, we have a, a, a good group of listeners who are really interested in some of these um, alternative uh, structures for, you know, looking at themselves and sort of exploring um, mental health issues or 
any any particular um, concerns right. or thoughts they have for themselves. So um, I am sure that you will you will hear from some of our listeners. Right. Excellent, great. And I'll be incorporating it into my group course. So thank yeah. you for that. Excellent. It would be really interesting to hear how you get on as well because I'm always keen to he to hear how people have. I'll let you know. Programs. So that'd be great. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we really appreciate it. And we will we'll certainly keep uh, tabs on what you're doing and you are uh, always welcome back to, you know, if you have another book coming out or anything else going on, mm -hmm. perhaps when the, um, when the course is back online sure. and, and you're ready to start, um, you know, kind of pushing that out there, you know, certainly let us know and we will be happy to have you back on and we'll talk about it some more and, and get some more people in, interested and involved. Excellent. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye.